because communicators are trained to lean into transparency and to lean into dialogue. And you know, that's not the nece- that's not necessarily the first reflex of most executives or um, of or lawyers. In fact, they say, "Oh, that opens up to all kinds of liability. We don't want to be doing that." Mm. Welcome to another episode of Made with Japan. I'm your host, Ken Shibusawa. My guest on this episode is a real powerhouse, Jin Montesanto. She is the Board of Directors and Chief People Officer at Lixel Corporation, which is a maker of water and housing products with operations all over the world. I met Jin for the first time just about a month ago where I was a moderator for an ESG symposium. And she was so interesting to talk to that I just had to get her back on the show to do a more of a deep dive to see you know, what she was thinking about and how she's trying to transform corporate Japan. I really had fun with this conversation with Jin and I think you'll enjoy it as well. Okay, it's great to have Jin Montesano in my show today. I met Jen for the first time about a month ago, actually, uh, at the Japan Times ESCG Symposium and had such a fun time talking with her that I had to bring you back. So, um, <laughs> Jen, uh, welcome back and nice seeing you. Nice to see you too, Ken. Thank you so much. Great. Well, uh, Jen is, okay, the Director, Executive Officer, Executive Vice President, Human Resource and General Affairs, Public Affairs, Investor Relations, External Affairs, and Corporate Responsibility, and Chief People Officer at Lixel Corporation. Now, that's a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> I know. <laughs> sounds it's like you do, every, you, you do everything else except for make, make this a kitchen sink, basically, right? <laughs> Well, you know what they say, people with longer titles have, you know, very little influence. So <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but begin our conversation, your your journey to a position with so much positions and titles, you know, at a Japanese company. <laughs> uh, where, where should we start? Let's start with your childhood. I think you're raised in, 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 in Hawaii or something, right? That's right. That's right. I'm from Honolulu. Um, my parents basically immigrated there from Korea to start a better life. My uncle, my dad's older brother uh, was an engineer and he actually sponsored the visas that got them over. And uh, my dad's actually a papaya farmer, even today, although he farms much less. Yes. Yeah. So he became quite a successful um, farmer of produce and um, became something like the third biggest papaya farmer in Hawaii at the time that I was in high school. And, you know, so you can imagine lots of papayas in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Papaya for breakfast, papaya for lunch, papaya for dinner, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. So I, you know, I grew up in a pretty, we lived in Honolulu, but we went to the farm a lot. It was on the other side, as we call it, the windward side. And um, in um, Kahalu, do you know what Kahalu is? Um, I just know North Shore. <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 still on the Cam Highway, but it's it's a little bit you know more rustic. And okay. he's also taken over some old dole dole land near North Shore as well, the rich red soil in, mm-hmm. in uh, it, yeah. North Shore side. So, um, but now he's doing a lot less of it. But so yeah, I grew up in Honolulu, left Hawaii to go to college on the mainland, as we say, you know, <laughs> and then um, went on from there. Really, 
Yeah. Actually, my my sister used to teach at the University of Hawaii, and so my nieces grew up in Hawaii, like yourself, and oh. they ended up, uh, you know, on the East Coast. Okay, right. Well, lots of people leave Hawaii, even though <laughs> everyone always asks why you do it. <laughs> yeah, why, why did you do it? Well, you know, it's strange. I I've always talked fast and thought fast and walked fast. Everything was fast. And everyone that's, says, that's, you that's know, not very, that's not very Hawaii. Right. It wasn't very <laughs> Hawaii. So, so I was encouraged to go and try and find places that I could fit in better. Plus, you know, my dad being um, the typical Korean American um, father, you know, he was really obsessed about education and you better go to a good school, got to go to the mainland, you know, don't bring family shame upon us by, uh, you know, getting stuck at, a community college here in Hawaii. So it was sort of like that. So I ended up, you know, I was a good student, luckily. And uh, I ended up getting to go to a pretty decent university. Wow, great. So what was your mom like? My mom was the opposite. She was all about, it doesn't really matter, you know, what school you go to or how smart you are. It's really about health, you know, having the people you respect and, and love around you. So she was totally the opposite. And my dad was like, oh, don't listen to any of that nonsense. You need to get straight A's. <laughs> yeah, so who, who was the faster talker your mom or your dad mm, neither were really fast talkers my, my mom said I began speaking before my first birthday um, and so everyone thought I was going to become a lawyer or some job that required a lot of good communicating well um, <laughs> she was right yeah <laughs> yeah so they were always surprised uh, that I picked it up quickly and um well, yeah, here I am. I mean, I built an entire career in communication, so I guess that yeah, worked. I mean, yeah, Although, so. yeah. So when you were a little girl in Hawaii looking forward to the future, I'm sure you didn't imagine yourself being a board director of a Japanese company. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, I did not. <laughs> what did you want to be when you, you know, when you grew up? Well, you know, I grew up, I like to tell my brothers, I have two younger brothers who um, kind of came into our lives when my father started to become, you know, a wealthy businessman. But I mean, I grew up when we didn't have very much money. You know, I remember someone saying to me, hey, you, those are not jeans you're wearing. And I'm like, yeah, they are. These are jeans. And they said, no, jeans don't have elastic bands. And I went, oh, and I went home and I said, mom, you know, this girl at school says these aren't real jeans. And she's like, well, yeah, well, I sold them for you just the way I thought, you know, jeans should be. And uh -huh. so I didn't grow up thinking I was poor, but I obviously was, you know, um, well cared for. <laughs> but, you know, I had a very different reality from my brothers and my luxury in life, my treat, if I was a good girl, was to be taken to the Hawaii State Library. And I loved books. So my dream was always to write books. My dream was to become the great American writer. And um, eventually, of course, not in fifth grade, but I, I really wanted to write. I used to write a lot of short stories really? um, and read copiously. And books were the way really? wow. to discover, you know, new worlds and new areas of, um, you know, exploration, things you didn't know about, right? So you read all the usual stuff, Beverly Cleary and so forth, but I really thought that I would go to the best English department in the United States and become a novelist. And that's how I ended up at Columbia because wow. I was determined to become a writer. That's Is that what I was right? Doing. Is that yeah. right? Oh, that's, that's excellent. So do you, do you still write on the side these days or? 
I do. And, you know, I, I had started a blog when I first got to Japan. And then my husband said, oh, no, 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 you can't publish that. You can't, you can't write that. <laughs> oh. like, yeah, that, that's going to get you into a lot of trouble. I said, oh, really? You should, publish, you, should, you should publish that, actually. If you talk to my team, they'll tell you yeah. mm, there's a lot of stuff that Jin should not be publishing. <laughs> <laughs> now you got me curious. <laughs> I'm a sort of off the record type of person. Got it. Got it. Fortunately, we're fortunately or unfortunately, we're on record, but, uh, yes, <laughs> but yes. maybe I'll pull out some nice stories from you. So, so you wanted to be a journalist or is like a more like no, a novelist, novelist, you know, novelist. I even got, okay. yeah, I even got my bartending license in the city of New York. So, because I had this, you know, crazy notion that I'm going to have to work at night so that I can write during the day. And, mm -hmm. you know, New York City really kind of took over my imagination. You know, it was wonderful to go to school in New York. I always tell people, if you can't be really, really rich in New York City, then you you also enjoy it if you're really, really poor. Because when I was in New York City, um, I didn't have any money. So all you can do is kind of wander around. And, and I mean, there's so much to see and do and observe. And it's just kind of rich landscape of, you know, things that you can actually write about. And I did have, um, you know, some fantastic professors there. That's what I thought I wanted to do. But then I had the rude awakening where my parents, well, my father was like, um, you're not going to become a writer. Okay. Because really? people they starve and they don't make any money and yeah. you're not going to do that, you know? And I got really, you know, stuck. And he said, you've got to go become a lawyer, you know? And I said, well, I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> you know, that's not my interest. So to kind of dodge law school, I uh, applied to go to public policy school. Because the other side thing I was doing at Columbia was a lot of, um, you know, I was learning a lot about poverty and, um, you know, racial justice and different topics where public policy and politics were really kind of conflated. And I was really interested in this area. I, I was actually a publisher of a major undergraduate journal of law and public policy called Helvidius. So I was really interested in this area where politics and policy really kind of come together. And. I thought, okay, instead of going to law school, maybe I'd go to public policy school. And I got a pretty nice um, fellowship, which basically paid for everything. And, and that gave me two years at Princeton where I had a chance to really study um, something else. Hopefully that would lead me to a different kind of path that's going to earn money, as my parents would say. And um, I became very interested in international relations. And uh, I studied national security, actually. And so that's a very different path. Yeah. yeah. Um, I spent a lot of time on Northeast Asian security issues like Kent Calder and Robert Gilpin. These mm -hmm. were my professors. Um, actually, Bernanke taught me macro at Princeton. So that was really well. Yeah. Um, that was awesome. Yeah. And so then I went to Washington, D.C. and, you know, basically entered the world of public affairs and public policy. Is that right? Well, did, you, did you work for the government or the think tank? or? No, I was working for the Korean Economic Institute, which was essentially doing U.S.-Korea, U.S.-Asia trade and economic policy research. Mm -hmm. I was the head of congressional affairs. Okay. So I spent a lot of time on the Hill um, trying to explain to legislators and L.A. and chiefs of staff to senators and congressmen well, where Korea is on a map, um, what the Korea, what the issues are with U.S.-Korea relations, especially on trade. This is during the 90s when you know, it was all semiconductors, beef, autos, right. spirits, 
these types of issues. Um, and so really, that's where I figured out the whole game around stakeholder management. You know, I remember the first week I landed up, my boss said to me, here's, um, there was a book called Roll Call, and it's sort of like long and thin. I think it's designed for men to put on the inside pocket of their suits, jackets. And basically, it's a Facebook that Roll Call publishes, and it's got all the pictures of every single member of Congress, okay. how much they've served, what the state, and so on and so forth. How do they vote with the current administration? And he said, okay, you've got a week to memorize everything in this book. Because, you know, Washington, D.C. is a bit like Hollywood, but not as attract for not as attractive people. <laughs> Meaning like you, you can basically go to any cafe or restaurant and run into yeah. the senator of the Senate Armed Services Committee. Right, right, right. Services. Okay. And, and you need to know who he or she is. Right. And it. you need to be ready to basically have a conversation at any yeah. point in time. It's a one horse town and you're either in the government being lobbied or you're outside the government lobbying the government. <laughs> got it. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So, that, so that's where I learned. How do you actually strike up a conversation? How do you actually enter into a conversation? How do you kind of work with other people to help gain gain common understanding about an issue? So, so how did you get from Washington to the corporate sector? I got married. Okay. And, <laughs> and, and my husband, who's an American from Buffalo, New York, yeah. uh, actually is a Southeast Asianist. He's a scholar and a professor of Southeast Asian history, economic history. And he, he got a faculty position at the National University of Singapore. Okay. And so, and Michael, you know, he speaks, I don't know, half a dozen languages. I'm the sort of quintessential ugly American. I don't have languages. And I never really expected to have a global career, whereas he did the Peace Corps in, you know, this rural province in Thailand and had always wanted to go back and live in Southeast Asia. So when he got this faculty position in Singapore, you know, we decided to move to Singapore. And uh, at that point, I was working for a U.S. government think tank called the Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies. I was recruited over to basically work on Northeast Asian security policy issues. And um, it's now, I think, renamed as like the Daniel Kate Inouye Center for Security okay. Studies. Uh, because you know, Senator Inouye was really the guy who made that center happen. It's sort of modeled after the Marshall Center and it's a track to dialogue uh, organization. And so I had left Washington to do that role and that job was based in Honolulu. So it gave me a chance to go home as an adult. Mm -hmm. And when we left that and moved to Singapore, I had no friends, no connections, and I'd never lived you know, outside of the United States, right? So I didn't know much about Southeast Asia. So it meant I had to start over. So at 29, I started flipping through the, you know, newspaper want ads looking for jobs, essentially. Wow. Yeah. And every Wednesday was the recruit section in the Straits Times. <laughs> this is way back. <laughs> Talk about analog. I'm old. And every Wednesday, it'd be really thick with all these want ads. Wow. And yeah, and I kept seeing these jobs um, that describe communication roles. And you know how the, the communication roles are always described so generally. You, know, you have to be able to read and write and speak fluently and have you know, good, good uh, grammar and whatever, um, you know, write correspondence and do this. And I thought, oh, okay, I can, I can do that. That sounds pretty you know, straightforward. I mean, I have two Ivy League degrees. I published with Cambridge University Press. You know, 
I, I'm pretty sure I can do this, but I, you know, rejected, rejected, rejected. Finally, I got this letter from this one company. Every week I'd apply and see what happens and I'd just be rejected. And mostly they would say, you don't have any communications experience. Mm. And I'm like, well, how am I going to get communications experience if you don't hire me, you know? But you're picking up congressmen in, in Washington, <laughs> D.C., so you obviously well, have communications. You know, <laughs> it's really interesting, Ken. At that time in Singapore, this was 1999, they really did not get it. They said, what the heck is a humanities degree, like an arts and sciences degree? We really? don't, okay. What is this? Like you've got a major, you majored in English and then you have a, a master's in public affairs and international relations. Like, yeah, we've heard of your schools, but what are these degrees? It's not finance or accounting or marketing. Um, so people had a hard time with that. And then, of course, the descriptions of my jobs were also soft. You know, I'm, I'm lobbying on trade issues or I'm working to bring, you know, understanding on these and these. So it, it was too general, I guess. And so people had a hard time. One day I got a rejection letter from a company that was the head of HR. And that person said to me, hey, look, I thought your letter, your uh, cover letter was really hilarious. Um, cause at this point, I guess I was getting a bit snarky, but he said, I thought your cover letter was really hilarious. We can't offer you the position you applied for, but I did take the liberty of passing your CV on to a friend of mine at Ogilvy PR and, you know, she might contact you. And I said, Oh, thank you so much. So long story short, I did get a call from Ogilvy and, you know, an American was running Ogilvy at the time. So of course she looked at my CV and said, Oh, well, okay, I think you can write and read. I think that's probably clear. So I'll hire you, but I'll hire you at $1,600 uh, Singapore dollars a month. And you'll join uh, as an associate, like with all the other, you know, Shinu Shine, the new grads, mm -hmm. and you'll start from the bottom. And I said, what? You know, I, I was making like a six-figure salary. I was, I was a DOD employee. Like, you know, <laughs> like, this is yeah, too yeah. crazy, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, she said, yeah, but you don't know how to write a press release. You've never pitched a reporter. You know, you got, you got to start from the bottom. And so I said, OK, well, you know, beggars can't be choosers. And I did. It was probably the best decision I ever made. Really? Well, yes. Wow. Wow. Best decision I ever made because it exposed me to a whole new world. That firm at the time was quite local. Made a lot of Singaporean, Malaysian, Chinese friends at that firm. And at that point, I'm sort of, you know, I'm 29 and everybody else is 22 or 23. And they're all kind of um, very eager to pitch what they know. Whereas I don't have the jargon or the language and I don't know how to pitch. So they drag me to new business meetings and they say to the client, oh, we can do this and we can do that. And we can do an event for you and we can actually you know, create this campaign. And the event, and then the client will say, yeah, you know, that's not what I'm looking for. It was very easy for me to say, okay, so help me understand this. So what I'm hearing you say is you want, you have this sort of a problem, X, Y, and Z. Is that right? Well, yes. And you'd like us to consider how we might solve it from this perspective, X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, exactly. And I said, okay, well, let us go away and come back to you with a proposal. Long story short, I figured out I'm really good at pitching new business. <laughs> and <laughs> because I didn't have the jargon. Yeah. And I could yeah. talk plain, plain language with clients. And so eventually I didn't actually do a lot of servicing. I was just what they call the, the, the shark. I went out and I brought home the, the business. <laughs> oh and, then, and then we'd like dole it out to um, 
you know, the account teams. And I did that for a little while, but then one of my clients had a big crisis, which I managed for them pretty well. And the president of the Asia Pacific region called me in and and offered me an in-house job. That's how I made the switch from agency to in-house. Interesting. Just a sidestep. You mentioned crisis and what's the, what's the, um, how do you manage a crisis when it happens? Well, I love crisis. I never, I never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. 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 Every time my career's um, turned for the better has always been because of a crisis. So I'm always grateful to crises in life. Okay, so when, yeah. when when you're faced with a crisis, what what is the uh, stance or what's the mental sort of positioning you take when well, a crisis pops up? When a crisis pops up, so I'm kind of a very excitable person and I'm very gregarious and very outgoing. But when a crisis happens, I'm dead serious. I get very focused and I start to do what what I'm trained to do, which is to really start mapping out what what we need to know now. What do we know now? What do we need to know now? Who knows it? And what are the implications? And we start to actually figure out really quickly where we think scenario-wise this could go. And you spend a lot of time over communicating with the executives to get them aligned to what needs to happen. And, you know, time and again, crises have really helped me and communicators, all good communicators, shine. Because this is the moment when everyone feels a little bit exposed or vulnerable and good communicators who know how to move in a crisis really step forward and take charge. And they're often the ones figuring out what the crisis team needs to look like, how we need to actually organize for a response. Do we respond now? Do we respond later? There's all, often in a crisis, people shy away or the lawyers get involved and they say, we can't say anything. We don't know anything. We don't know what our exposure is. And the communicators are often the opposite saying, no, even if we have fewer answers and more questions, we need to say that. Because communicators are trained to lean into transparency and to lean into dialogue. And, you know, that's not the nece- that's not necessarily the first reflex of most executives or um, of or lawyers. In fact, they say, oh, that opens up to all kinds of liability. We don't want to be doing that. Right. But I think communicators believe, well, I do anyway. I don't want to put the words of community. You know, I don't want to say what all communicators believe, but, you know, I believe that, and I've always believed that uh, the court of public opinion is far more powerful than the legal court of um, the legal courts mm-hmm. in many ways. And um, you could maybe win or lose a battle in the legal courts, but when you lose a battle in the court of public opinion, it's really hard to get back what you lost. And it takes years to recover the reputational damage, possibly even the exposure you've created for the corporation where then regulatory and or um, a new legal constraint comes into play and, and you really don't have any room to maneuver because there's no, you've lost all your capital, your political right. capital, your social right. capital. Yeah. So, so understanding how the court of public opinion works being very clear and very real with yourselves as executives at the board table about where you stand and how you're perceived and how um, your actions today are being received is is a really important part of leading, leading organizations, leading teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the, the the lesson for crisis one, <clears throat> one and two and three is probably communication is probably the 
the message I heard from you. But when you think of crisis, what do you think? Do, do crisis happen because of external forces or is it because of internal? Both, all the time. Um, yeah. Often, yeah, often there's, you know, when I um, first came to Lixel, four months later, we got stuck in a really bad crisis with a small Chinese subsidiary that we had acquired uh, when we acquired Groha, the, the European brand, you know, the top shower makers and, and faucet makers. Yeah, yeah. yeah they, there was a small subsidiary that was part of that transaction. And that subsidiary was basically, you know, falsifying its books. And so four months into my job at Lixel, I'm still trying to get my feet under the table. This thing explodes. Yeah. And, you know, that was one long, hot summer. And I'm sure, yeah. you know, you can go back and look at that. But, you know, yeah. that crisis. Really, remember that news. Yeah. 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 You remember that. That crisis really helped focus us, though. And, and that was one of my earliest moments where in the boardroom, I was pitted against some of the other executives who said, look, we can't say anything. We need to really work this through. And I said, no, this is the moment where we need to give a press conference and explain exactly what's happened here. And we were actually in that situation, you know, depending on how you want to look at it, either victims, because with fraud, it's very hard to detect if the fraud's been going on for a long time. And in, in our case, could have been decades. So that really helps you know, us to be able to explain what we've discovered, what actions we've taken as a result of that discovery, and the fact that we still don't have all the facts yet, but we're committed to sharing it as we know it. And mm -hmm. that early first press conference that we gave helped to calm the markets. And we, then we gave several subsequent press conferences after that to explain where we were in our investigation. We landed up at the AGM in June, and we expected AGM, to be AG. the annual general meeting of shareholders. Oh, yeah, usually that's where shareholders, you know, speak their word yeah. about yeah. how you've been handling yeah. things. Yeah. You know, we we expected that shareholding shareholders meeting to be incredibly difficult, and actually, the whole thing all in was something like you know sixty eight minutes long. It was very apparent that many of them referred to, you know. Chacho, we read your uh, comments in the Nikkei, or I read what you said to the Asai Shimbun and kept them updated on what was going on at Lixo. Thank you for doing that. Right, got it, good, good. I wanna get dig deeper into Lixo, but how, how did you get from Singapore to Lixo? Uh, hmm. I, so in Singapore, my first, after Ogilvy, I went to GlaxoSmithKline. I joined GSK right at the merger. So Glass of Welcome merged with SmithKline Beach and became the world's largest pharmaceutical company. And from GSK, I worked, um, I basically helped them build their own in-house regional corporate and government affairs team. That was the mandate. Mm -hmm. I did that for about five years when I got a call from a recruiter to go and do what I did for GSK for GE. And at that time, uh, GE was trying to establish its consumer finance organization in Asia and it was going to be led by Yoshiaki Fujimori. And so he would be my boss, and he was talking to lots of different candidates. And uh, in the end, Fuji um, selected me. So I, I joined his team and became part of the, the GE Money Asia organization. And that was a thrill and a half working for GE. It was crazy. Yeah. I left GE to join Kraft Foods, 
right at the time that they had the melamine crisis. That was also why I joined. They recruited me to basically help navigate craft through that. I stayed for the Danone biscuits acquisition and the Mondelez um, and then the share split of Kraft and Mondelez to become the world's largest snacking company. And then I got called back by GSK who said, we need you to come back to GSK in a global role. And the role is in Belgium. Uh, will you do it? You know, so, um, you know, and that's a whole other story, but that the vaccine world is fascinating. GSK is actually the world's largest maker of vaccines. Um, from cradle to grave, it's got the broadest portfolio, the deepest portfolio, and it covers the most number of disease areas. Mm-hmm. And um, they were undergoing a tremendous um, operating uh, operating landscape change, which is creating a pressure on the organization. And essentially, it's a good pressure from your lens, because what essentially happened were, was that new financing mechanisms were introduced with the Gates Foundation, the creation of Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccine immunization, you know, these organizations were now like flush with cash. So traditionally babies in London or Tokyo would get vaccinated first and then babies in Tanzania would get vaccinated 10 years later. All this new financing now allows for all babies to get vaccinated more closely at the same time with new innovations. But with all this cash to buy large quantities of vaccines, you really took the bottom out of the price. And so when a sea change happens like that to a business model, you have to go into transformation. And that's what the company was doing. And so um, I was asked to come and join and help rebuild and recontract, sort of support the company in this transformation, because we're now going to have to do things a lot more differently, but also to uh, reconnect and design a stronger stakeholder um, management strategy where our our conversations are to really recontract a new way forward with UNICEF and WHO and Gavi and the Gates Foundation and so forth. So that was the job. It was really interesting. That took me to Belgium. And actually my boss, the, the person who recruited me to Belgium was none other than Christoph Weber, who's here in Tokyo with me. Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. So then I moved to Belgium with my husband and a wonderful, wonderful place. And we loved Belgium, but halfway through it, Christoph, sort of said, look, um, actually, I'm going to Takeda. <laughs> and I said, what? We're in the middle of this transformation. How can you do this? He, he's a fantastic leader, obviously, and a tremendous CEO. Um, and, and this was a fantastic opportunity for him. So he mm-hmm. left. I stayed on and continued with the new leader uh, when I got a call from Fuji, who was on his way to Davos. And he said, hey, Jin, you're still in Belgium. I said, yes, I am. And he said, well, look, I'm the new CEO of this company called Lixel. I really want you to come to Japan. (laughs) And I said, what? Why are you, you know, what? Tell me about Lixel. So he did. He told me about Lixel and what was going on. It was interesting. But I'll be honest with you, Ken. I I wasn't wasn't (laughs) all that optimistic about it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was in a good place uh, at GSK and things were going very well. Not only that, though, if I'm going to be really honest with you, um, when I called up some of my friends and said, what do you think about this? They said, what? You can't go to Japan. You don't even speak Japanese. They were they were so harsh yeah. you know, and, yeah. and trying to get me off it mm-hmm. that I became very intrigued by it. And uh, I actually told Fuji um, that I would consider it if he actually ran a proper recruiting process. Okay. 
So I said, I don't want to be one of these Amakudari types, yeah. right? I would like there to be a competitive process. Yeah. And if he actually hires a proper recruiting firm of some repute and engages in a in an official process, I would throw my hat in the ring. And so he did. And uh, and I said, look, it's a win-win proposition for you. You know, if you find someone better than me, you win. If you actually end up selecting me, you you get me in the end anyway, you know? Uh, so it's a good process for you to go through. And why did I do that? It's very simple because stakeholder management. Okay. You don't want to join a company that's never had a foreign, well, they've never had a communications head um, of, of with any real professional, you know, uh, experience. I'm going to be a foreigner joining this very, domestic Japanese company, it's very important that the socialization process happens, that they understand who I am. And if they don't like me, that's really important to get established mm -hmm. before anyone has packed up and, and moved lives over to Japan. Mm -hmm. So I think that stakeholder management process was important for executives, I believed. But it was also important for me. It's a chance to kind of look under the hood and, you know, kick the tires, as it were. Sure. Right? What's going on in this company? And so, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. And that's how I ended up in Tokyo in 2014. Wow. So if you, if you can kind of go back in your memory banks, <clears throat> what was your first impression when you opened the doors of Lixel and you walked in? Yeah. I was stunned. I felt like I was entering like one of these Japanese television dramas. You always see that on television, right? I mean, I'm a huge addict of uh, Japanese dramas, Korean dramas, and it just, it was um, this huge floor open plan. We were in the Kasumiyaseki Biru, 36th floor, and you had all the windows lined with these huge executive offices. So <laughs> nobody had any views into the windows because they were all taken up by executive. And it was just, it was like a black and white movie because nobody had any color on. <laughs> and everybody's heads were down. It was very, very quiet. It was a little bit daunting. Uh, I remember inheriting a team that didn't speak any English, not a word. And I said, well, how? I don't speak Japanese. My Japanese is like, you know, third grade Japanese. I mean, I took Japanese for three years in high school. So, yeah, I, right. but that was mostly so that I could like sell t-shirts to tourists in Waikiki, you know, because right. I, I used to work part-time at Esprit, you know, that brand. Um, but this was not, you know, it was very, very um, daunting and I didn't know how I was going to manage it, but I, I felt like I'd step back into the seventies or the eighties where um, there's this kind of very, strong sense of how one ought to behave and it would be the same way that there was almost no diversity to speak of in that sense no diversity of um identity much less sort of you know gender or race or uh, yeah. all the other things everyone had to kind of behave a certain way and it was all very similar it's very so, shocking. so did you did you think you made the wrong decision when you walked in or or did you see it as a crisis <laughs> no no I, I actually didn't see it as a crisis because that was my first impression walking in but yeah. at the same time everyone was very warm to me 
Okay. You know, and actually a good friend of mine who um, I, I know um, who I knew before coming to Japan, I'm, you know, because before in my other regional roles, I had Japan as part of my geography. So I used to come here a lot and, you know, and my friend said to me, actually, you know, Lixel's a really um, it's not it's a new company. It's just come together. But the people there are really nice. And I said, oh, okay, that's interesting. And and actually he was right. You know, people, if you have to stereotype, folks at Lixel are actually pretty humble. So we don't have this kind of arrogance about ourselves. Like we're number one, we do things, you know, and I'm used to that because I worked at, you know, places like Craft or KRG. So we didn't have that kind of streak in our culture. We were very humble, very open, uh, willing to learn, a little bit nervous about what globalization meant, Mm -hmm. but very, very much understanding that this is where we need to go. This is the direction we need to go. So, you know, Jin-san, please help us. So, you know, the tremendous warmth and openness that I felt um, really was very much welcomed compared to sort of what I saw arriving, this, this sort of, you know, conformist environment. Was, was sort of softened by the way individuals uh, reacted and treated me. So, um, so I didn't feel it was a mistake at all. I've never once felt it was a mistake. Right. Um, there was a tremendous energy, though nervous, uh, energy about getting going. And, you know, don't forget at this point, we had merged the five companies. We then went and bought Groet, bought American Standard, bought Permastaliza. And we had something like... Um, you know, 30,000 employees outside of Japan all scratching their heads going, does anybody speak English over there? What's going on? (laughs) You know, I mean, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but yeah, nobody in communications spoke any English and had very little contact, very little contact with the the world outside of Japan. We didn't have an internal communications infrastructure, you know? So when I, when I said, well, are, do we ever issue CEO messages? They're like, well, sometimes would you write something and then we'll email it and then we'll email to executives and they'll kind of cascade it but if you know anything about cascades it, it really doesn't work okay nobody <laughs> keep forwarding it on yeah, so sure. you, yeah you can imagine that people were really sort of lost and disconnected so the five companies merged when 2011 2011, 2011. So you arrived, okay you arrived three years later um, and the name was Lixel. It was a new brand that was right. formed, right? Yes. Before it was Tostem was the, was the, I guess, the major company, right? Was Tostem. it? So the five companies of Tostem, Inax, Shinike, Toyo Exterior, and Sunwave. Sunwave is the kitchen maker. Okay. So, you know, the top players in housing and, and water, if you think about it, right. right? They looked out on the world and said, wow, with this declining population and aging population, mm-hmm. you know, we may need to join forces, come together. Shall we pool our assets and our technology and our expertise and create a united future? And so they came together in 2011. And you can imagine they had a lot of capital to deploy. Yeah. <laughs> they, they decided that rather than taking one of their own names, they would create a new name. So Lixel actually stands for the intersection of life and living. That's how Lixel came together. Oh, really? I didn't ever really... <laughs> It sounded like life something, but I didn't realize it was, okay. Life and living, is that, okay. Oh. Because we are a maker of making homes uh, a better place for everyone, right? So we make 
and we improve homes. And today, well, of course, in Japan, you can make an entire home with Lixel products. Yeah. You know, but all of those products aren't necessarily available outside of Japan. So that that mm-hmm. already is a major mm-hmm. opportunity. Mm-hmm. But with the capital that was captured in the in the five company merger, uh, they hired uh, Fujimori-san, right? So Fuji joined to become the first CEO professional CEO of Lixel. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. he went on a buying spree with everyone else on the executive team to really globalize the firm. So that was the, the mission was to let's quickly globalize the firm, create new avenues for growth and, um, you know, water technology in the brands of American Standard and Grow obviously were really critical to helping um, to ignite that momentum toward growth. American Standard, by the way, people don't know this, but had been broken up after privatization. American Standard um, was in pieces, you know. Um, yeah. So Lixel actually went and bought one by one all the pieces. So much like Humpty Dumpty, we put it back together again. Is that right? Okay. I didn't no, didn't realize that. No. Yeah. So we had to buy the piece in Asia, separate from China, separate from U.S., you know, because it was part of different um, entities, different private equity um, entities. So it went from a basically domestic conglomerate of companies and Fujimori-san came in and decided to go when I moved to globalize. And then and he had to leave under, I guess, difficult circumstances. Is, is, is that the right communication word? Well, <laughs> um, he he did he did his five years. Yeah. And in in 2015, um, he retired yeah. in December, and we welcomed a new CEO. Mm-hmm. And at this point, basically, the globalization run to some extent could be considered achieved, right? Yeah. So we now had this massive Italian curtain walls manufacturer called Permastilisa, based out of Veneto of um, Venice, right? And we were making buildings like in New York city, we, we manufactured like a hundred buildings. Like the, the base of the new um, freedom tower is uh, a Lixo base made by Permastilisa. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the Prada building in Minami Aoyama is also a Permastilisa building. The one mm-hmm. that looks like bubbles. Yeah. So we had become this massive company that had building technology, housing technology, water technology. It was really unruly. And while we had really strong growth, we had very poor ROE. Our financials were great. We were in a lot of debt. And frankly, um, we could have done a better job with synergy creation, right? Integration. We didn't really do as good a job as we could have. So it was time now we were moving into what I would call phase two of the Lixel story. You know, phase one was merge and globalize. And I think we did that. Yeah. Phase two was now, well, we need to, we've had our, you know, really wonderful, bountiful meal at the buffet. We've got to go on a diet, do some boot camping and get ourselves trimmed up. And that's really where Kenya Seto steps in, in in 2016. He joins in January and, you know, he's a serial entrepreneur. Um, he's obviously, you know, uh, made his wealth uh, through Monotaro, but a lot of other ventures as well. And he himself is pretty globalized. You know, he's got an MBA from Tuck Dartmouth and has lived and worked you know, in Chicago and London and all over. And so he joins the company and essentially starts to look at this organization and says, what is the core of what we do? You know, how, we're, we're in a very, very um, 
expanded and somewhat diverse um, portfolio, but can we afford to be in all of this when there isn't necessarily synergy um, for this portfolio? And so he began the hard work of transforming the company from this rather diversified conglomerate mm -hmm. that held a lot of potentially unrelated assets into this extremely cogent, streamlined, integrated company that it is today. And he mm -hmm. began the work of that. And, you know, that's been done. And I, I would say, you know, from 16 to this now, 21, although yeah. we had that one year where we had the famous, you know, proxy battle yeah, yeah. where he was out. But if you think about it, that that's a rapid transformation yeah. of the organization. And so yeah. you can imagine what's been going on internally to really get there. You know, since Kenya joined, I would say uh, we've actually divested dozens and dozens of entities. I see. Really get to the shape that we are today. And our focus now is very much around housing and water technologies. Mm -hmm. Okay. I noticed uh, on that you you have the, on the governance structure that I think there was there are nine directors and and three internal and six external, which is unusual in Japan. And one of the internal director is yourself, a woman, non-Japanese, which is I don't think there's any other com company in Japan that has that kind of governance structure. And so, can, how did that come? How, how did that come to be? Right. Well. After the shareholder battle and the surprise um, win of, of Kenya and his slate of candidates, right? All of Kenya's candidates made it into the cor corporation as a board director. And some members of the corporation's candidates made it in. And that's why we had a very large uh, board of directors that first year in that uh, AGM in 2018. Is it 18, 19? I can't remember, I'll come back to you on that. Um, it's blurring on me now. but. After that shareholder um, vote and the board was put together, the company decided it needed to be much more purposeful about governance. We needed enhanced corporate governance. That was partly why we had some of the challenges we did. And Kenya was determined to ensure that we had, we were operating the best um, corporate governance we could. And Matsuzaki-san, the chairman of the board, is of is recognized in Japan as one of the leading corporate governance experts um, himself. And he really took charge to create a much more active oversight of the board. So Lixel was very comfortable to move into an, um, a setup where we have more outside directors than inside directors. We also operate a committee-based model where there's a nominating committee that um, manages CEO succession and sets the policies for executive officers fit and um, you know capability, as well as a compensation committee that determines you know the compensation and benefits of executive officers. So we use a committee-based model, which is considered the gold standard for for good boards all around the world. I, I would say. So um, the 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 board to, uh, of nine today, the six and the three, is perhaps what we would regard as a healthy board from a corporate governance standpoint. And the three inside directors are really the CEO, the CFO, and, and myself. Um, when I was invited to join the board, I really saw that not so much about me, but a signal of the seriousness with which the board wanted to better understand our people strategy and really bring the people strategy much closer to the discussion 
that was happening at board level. And so I really was quite honored to be in a position where I could actually be this person who joins the board and, and provides that closing of the distance around our people strategy. You know, our investors have taken a tremendous interest in our people strategy. And it's really quite interesting. And as someone who, who didn't come up the ranks as an HR person, you know, I don't know if this is an unusual experience or if most CHROs are going to listen to your, uh, your podcast, Ken, and think, yeah, well, of course, that's, some, that's normal, Jen. But I find that investors listen to the strategy, the corporate strategy that's being um, set out by the CEO. And then they meet with me to understand whether I've got the right people strategy that's going to help realize that corporate strategy. So the people strategy ends up becoming really kind of the proof of the pudding. You know, as a long-term investor, you know, I uh, started a fund called Commons Asset Management in 2008 and make long-term investments in companies. And we always made, had this uh, strategy that said basically that the future sustainable value of a corporation is not just in its intangible financial assets, but the intangible um, non-financial assets. And, and if you had to wrap it up into one word, what is that? And it's the people that work there. But from an investor standpoint, you know, we see the CEO, we see the CFO, we see the numbers, but we really, really don't get to see the people that's actually in the, you know, in manufacturing sales and marketing, the assistance. And, and, and so that's a very, very, I think, important part of the equation for, for corporate value creation. Yes. That's exactly right. And, you know, we just published last year, probably the most, I would say, most comprehensive and clear explanation for how Lixo creates corporate value. And what was so interesting about that exercise was Kenya really doubling down and saying, people, people are at the heart of this. So you need to go back and look at how we demonstrate how the people and the value of people that we're unlocking is going to lead to this value creation process. So we published that in our integrated report, but in going through the process of working with him on that, you really got a sense from Kenya that uh, while other companies might say, oh, it's our patented technologies or it's our you know, digital strategy or what have you, he really goes right back to the fundamental core of it. And it's really our people. How are we treating them? How are we rewarding them and compensating them? And um, how are we creating the workplace conditions for success. All of that then, of course, leads to greater innovations and better products and so on as credit yeah. service and so forth. So he's really focused around that and it's been really interesting to kind of work with him on it. So when you first arrived in 2014 and, and, and now the this intercommunication of Lixel? Yes. You see a big change in that? Yes. Yes, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, I mean, we... We went from, you know, an email is sent from the secretariat and mm -hmm. then it gets cascaded and probably yeah. gets stopped. Yeah. Yeah. Today, we have tens of thousands of employees 24-7 on a dynamic network called Workplace. And if you're on Facebook, you'll know Workplace because Facebook uh, created Workplace. And it's basically a closed system, um, social network, looks just like Facebook where in a drop, drop of a hat with your iPhone, you can do a town hall and reach all 60,000 people if you like. You can do the video on a tripod, just beam it out and you can do a live broadcast. You can get people commenting and sending in questions. You can post the recording and have people respond to it when they wake up in their time zone. That platform allows people to create open groups, closed groups, 
secret groups. Mm-hmm. And any topic you want to explore or develop, you can do it on this platform. And this has exploded the conversation. You know, mm-hmm. for example, one of the things that we really worked hard on to try and break down was top-down culture. You know, we were very command and control and top-down. Nobody moved unless an executive said, do it. And Kenya was adamant that we had to get rid of that culture. He wanted a much more bottom-up culture where people were free to speak up, give ideas, and not feel any fear of retribution, criticism, or yeah. just That's really a hard culture shift to make, right? Yeah. And so we introduced a lot of different initiatives to encourage, nudge, you know, convince, persuade managers as well as people to, to work more bottom-up. Mm-hmm. It was also inefficient, Ken, because if I'm working for you and I want to go and talk to that team over there, right? I can't just reach out to that team. I have to ask you as my boss, hey, Ken, can I go and ask some questions to that team over there? Because I think that information is going to be useful to me. And then you would talk to the bucho of that team. Is it okay for Jen to do so? You know, it's not efficient. So we wanted to break that up. And one of the ways we did it was with technology. We introduced Workplace. People immediately got onto it. And all of a sudden you flatten, you democratize hierarchy in the company. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a great example. When the Me Too movement was very, very active, but in Japan, there was this issue around why women have to wear high heels. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. And we have dozens and dozens of showrooms all across Japan. And one of our showroom representatives actually on Workplace typed in this question, why do we have why do we have to wear heels as part of our uniform? You know, we're standing all day long and actually this is really uncomfortable and difficult. Well, Kenya, who just scours workplace all the time and is in there and actively conversing with employees on a daily basis, saw that and he responded, yeah, why is that? Question mark. So in 24 hours, dress code changed. (laughs) And now of course, you know, women are allowed to wear whatever they think is comfortable to do their job. So it's just a small example of how technology democratizes communications, right? Abolishes some of the hierarchical constraints that are not healthy and allows people to really feel much closer to executives. So I'm, I'm on there all the time responding and people are sending me questions all the time. Some companies uh, have a comms team that manages those responses, but at Lixo we don't. So our comms team will pick up things if they think that this is something we need to respond to or we might have missed it. But by and large, executives, including Kenya, respond on his own. Mm-hmm. And I think that authenticity, that yep. real voice, yep. um, people have come to expect and certainly have come to appreciate. Right. So the message I got from the transformation of a, a Japanese company with lots of potential, but not being able to realize that potential to a, to a global company is, well, basically the people and for the, to empower the people, the, the message was you need the communication culture, basically. Right. Is that, is that fair to say? So what, what, what is Lixel's corporate culture as is today? Well, Lixel's corporate culture today is one where we have much less tolerance for this top-down hierarchical approach. Um, We've introduced what's called the Lixel behaviors, and they're really three behaviors, um, and they're very simple. Other companies might have values, but we have behaviors because we believe behaviors are visible. And so we can give you feedback on behaviors. 
Values are invisible and somewhat hard to pin down. And the behaviors are really simple. First is work with respect. Second, do the right thing. And the third is experiment and learn. Mm -hmm. And we basically say that cultures are cultures. And you could be in a German, I mean, the German business in Lixel sits in Dusseldorf. And there'll be a very different culture there from, say, the America's business sitting in New Jersey. We don't want to abolish um, the unique aspects of our culture. But what makes you common denominator elixir person is if you are living these behaviors. Work with respect. People think, oh, yeah, like respect other people, you know, be nice. Don't don't be rude or say offensive things. Actually, at Lixel, work with respect means regardless of hierarchy, everyone has a right to express their opinions. So respecting if I'm a manager and some uh, a junior talent or a younger person says something, you should be open to that and receive that and encourage that instead of saying, well, that's not going to work. Or look, you've only been here for three years, which is what maybe in the past would have happened. So work with respect really often is about put yourself in the other person's shoes, be open to ideas without criticism and really get a chance to understand where that other person is coming from. Find that common ground. Mm -hmm. That's work with respect. Do the right thing is also people think, oh, that's about legal and compliance. No, it's not. Do the right thing is about speaking up if you think something's not right. And that's not just about unethical practices. It can be about anything. You know, if we're making a decision about supply chain or we're taking a call about, you know, how we want to market a product, and we have something to say about it, we should feel very comfortable to raise our opinion. And so all of this, as you can see the pattern here, it's really about creating a psychologically safe environment where people feel very comfortable to be authentic and to communicate what they want. And for leaders and managers to be able to maturely uh, navigate, lead, and, and encourage that kind of environment, because that's really at the core um, what innovative cultures are like. And then the third thing about experiment and learn, you know, people are so afraid to take risks, right? People think if I take, if I do this and I fail, I'll probably be fired or demoted. That is completely untrue at Lixel, first of all, because we want you to actually think about how to experiment and learn in safe ways and small ways. You don't have to take a $5 million budget and without really thinking things through, do something that's going to be potentially detrimental to the company. But if you've got a really great idea, we're a culture where you can bring that idea. And if you can scale that idea and pilot it in a small, in a small way, we want to encourage you to do that. We also spend a lot of time talking about how we need to celebrate those failures because in, in innovative workplaces, those failures actually help contribute to the eventual success because you're learning along the way. And so this is a real change you can imagine from how it was operating before, but that's the culture we have today. And there are many, many examples of how we bring that to life. But those, those three key elements really, I think, form the crux of the culture uh, we're building at Lixel. And Japan, you know, as a result, our Japanese young talent, in fact, especially are really energized um, because for the first time, you know, I was listening to Ninami-san's podcast that you had on and you know how he talked about he couldn't wait for 30 years right so he had to build his own path well at Lixel we're encouraging our young talent to embrace your career journey don't wait around for someone to tap you on the shoulder and say okay we're ready for you to now step up to the next grade <laughs> you know we're a huge company we're operating in 150 markets 
we are so diverse. If you got an idea about where you want to take your career, embrace it and be bold. Think about where you want to work. Do you want to work in Germany one day or in, in Russia you know, or in Singapore or in Bangladesh? And do you want to pursue a career in marketing? Right now you're doing procurement, but you were put there as a Shindu Shine, but you really want to give it a go in marketing? Speak it, say it. And our job, and we're training managers to embrace that and to have that quality conversation about allowing employees to be in the driver's seat of their careers and really actually articulating what they'd like to do with managers in HR looking to enable that. How are we going to help you explore that? It may not be something you eventually end up doing for good, you know, in terms of rising to the top of the chain in that role, but we want your career at Lixil to be a learning journey and one that you actually help set, not one you just kind of got stuck with like a victim, like you were told you have to do this and that's what you're doing now. And we think that's actually going to make the company much more successful because you'll probably be happier doing the thing that you're actually interested in doing. And there's just so much to do at the company that there's room for everybody's you know, interests and aspirations. I really like what I heard today because basically the top-down approach and don't make, make mistakes approach, that worked in the Showa period, the made, made in Japan period where there was growth. But, but in this current period, when we need to discover and create new, new growth in various areas, you know, it seems like your model is the new model for Japan corporation going forward. So I'm really looking forward to greater things from, from your company and going forward. And so thank you for the you know kindness and and uh you know and the time that you spent with me the last hour or so so thank you so much for inviting me ken as you can imagine i can talk about lixel all day yeah <laughs> but any any one last message for our audience um i think in order for companies to really achieve sustainable transformation you have to do it from the inside out and it needs to start with your people because people truly are the most underutilized asset in any organization and figuring out how to unlock that asset is actually not as easy as it looks, but can you afford not to do it? Great message. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's, it's really um, wonderful speaking with you and I can, you know, well, you can talk about Lixel all day, but I can talk with you all day long. So. <laughs> but, but, but I have to thank let you go because you, you have a busy you, schedule today. But uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank okay. you so much. Really appreciate it. Great. Thanks. Let's have lunch Sunday. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Okay. Bye. All right. All right. Great. Thanks. Thank Take well. care. Bye bye. What did you think? Wasn't Jen great? Sounds like and feels like there's a lot of things going on at Lixo right now. A great transformation. And I would bet that there are other corporations out there with the same kind of potential. Just need to unleash the people and empower them. Thank you very much for joining our episode. Till next time, please have a good day or a good evening, wherever you are.